Hi, everybody. On the heels of having uh, had uh, Judea Pearl, who's a world-renowned AI uh, researcher, I've got another of those AI geeky luminaries. Today, I've got Dr. Gary Marcus with me. Uh, first, I'll say hello. How are you doing, Gary? Great to see you and honored to appear right after you know, Pearl, who's you know amazing. He's unbelievable. I mean, I couldn't believe that we connected. Uh, so you are a science, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur. You are apparently, possibly, the youngest uh, professor emeritus uh, from NYU. You are the founder and CEO of Robust AI and was the uh, founder and CEO of a company that was uh, acquired a few years ago by Uber Geometric Intelligence. Let me list not your edited books, but the books that you either authored or co-authored. The most recent one is Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust with Ernest Davis. Uh, Guitar Zero, The New Musician and the Science of Learning. We'll discuss whether I have any hope of learning the violin and becoming a virtu virtuoso. Uh, Cluj, is that how you pronounce it? Cluj? People uh, differ about that, but that's fine. I would say Cluj. Cluj, okay. The haphazard construction of the human mind. Then we've got the birth of the mind, how a tiny number of genes creates the complexities of human thought. And your first book, The Algebraic Mind, Integrating Connectionism and Cognitive Science. I was very excited to see the word connectionism because it brought me back to my days as a doctoral student where I had... Uh, the hope of maybe using uh, connectionist models to study consumer decision-making. Uh, you have published papers in a very broad range of disciplines. Uh, as I was preparing for our chat, I went to, of course, Google Scholar, and I was, I so love the fact that, you know, you're not one of those stay-in-your-lane guys that only publishes in, you know, three, four journals. You're in science, you're in nature, you're in psychological science, you're doing stuff on songbirds. So fantastic. So I thought we would start, I guess, with the, the following general first question, Gary, uh, of all of the different hats that you've worn, you've been a professor, of course, you're, you're, you lecture, you've been an entrepreneur, you're an author. Is there one hat that you find fulfillment more so than in the other ones? I, I think I keep doing all of these things because I like them all. I actually just passed the reins of robust AI to Anthony Jules, who's the new CEO there. Okay. Um, but I will be starting another project that I can't t talk about yet. Um, I, I like all of these things. Um, fundamentally, I'm interested in how the mind works, and I'm interested in how we can get machines to be as smart um, and hopefully not as stupid as human minds. <laughs> you know, try to try to find the best of both worlds. And that leads me both to the entrepreneurial activities to try to push the field forward and to a lot of writing and explaining how things work. And, and writing is a way I think about things. And it's kind of uh, research for me as I, as I try to bring together all these fields. I mean, you notice the interdisciplinarity, and that's always been really key for me. And writing is often a good way to do that. You know, ultimately, I would like to see an AI that we can trust, and I don't see it right now. I see an AI that I'm actually terrified of, that I think could be quite dangerous. I think we're maybe in the worst moment in history for AI. Like, we used to have talk about AI, but it wasn't implemented in the real world. Now it is, and it's just not that reliable, and that concerns me. And so a lot of the things I'm thinking about are, like, how could we make an AI that's better, whether that means I'm influencing policy or maybe working on a new company and, and so forth. But I don't know. It's, it's like asking me to choose between my two children. You know, I love them both, and I love all these activities. Sure, Gary. You love them both equally. Sure. Wink, wink. Uh, no, but actually, there is evolutionary work that looks at the evolutionary mechanisms that might explain parental favoritism. 
Uh, it's called the Trivers-Willard hypothesis. The, 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 the results are not... Uh, I, I met Trivers once. He offered me a joint 30 seconds after I met him. That's my, <laughs> that's my Trivers story. Well, I, 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 I hate what I'm about to say. I, I truly regret saying it because it's, uh, it, it was a negative interaction. Trivers, of, uh, for those of you who don't know who are listening to the show, some have argued that Robert Trivers is sort of the modern uh, incarnation of uh, Charles Darwin. This, that's how influential he's been in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And so I was very, very excited to, I mean, he, he apparently was a fan of mine. I mean, he followed me in some places, whatever, on I think LinkedIn or something. And so I reached out to him. I said, hey, why don't you come on my show? He was very excited. But some of you may or may not know that he, that Trivers has, has had some personality issues, if not some mental health issues. And so our interaction in a completely bewildering way went really south very quickly. And we, we never, and it, and it really went south because I was asking him to, you know, to get on Skype, to, to do the chat. And he got very angry and he, you know, it was beneath him to, to do it. And so I never ended up, uh, you know, holding a chat with him, which I really regret because he truly is a historical figure. So that's my Trevor story. But anyways, uh, so what I, what I just, just to finish the point about uh, parental uh, favoritism, the, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, you might think that both of your children are, you know, you, you share equal, you know, on average 50% of your genes with each. But the uh, Willard-Trivers hypothesis basically says that depending on the status of the parents, then you will channel your investment either more to the son or to the daughter. If if you if the parental invest if the parental status is high, then you invest more in your son because uh, to the extent that 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 could the status could be passed on to boys, and to the extent that boys will have greater reproductive success in the mating market if they have high status, then they will channel it to boys. If they are low status status they'll channel to girls now you're high status so if i'm going to follow that theory i would say you might invest more in your son than your daughter do you have both sexes or are they both the same sex i have one of each but the hypothesis for me ain't working i'm 50 50 <laughs> there you um, go on the, two, on the two kids and i'm staying that way i mean something you have to remember about evolutionary psychology is the mechanism that it or that, that evolution works with really uh it is the genes and the genes build a brain and then the brain is affected by the environment right um and so in the best case most of these evolutionary stories are going to explain some of the variants not all of them yeah. another way to think about that is if you have identical twins they're awfully similar on fingerprint ridge count they're nearly identical on height they're pretty similar on weight they're not as similar and you know the, the genes are exerting some influence but on weight like your diet and exercise have more of an influence as opposed to your finger ridge uh, count, which is not really affected by, you know, the choices that you make and, and so forth. And so you might expect just sort of in advance of serious investigation that a hypothesis like that might account for a, a bit of the variance. You wouldn't expect it to account for all of the variance and other things might go into it. So, for example, my history as a, a child of, of parents that, that kind of came of age in the 60s is that I'm very strongly connected or committed to egalitarian values. And so if I observed in myself a favoritism towards my son, I would fight that right. based on my political beliefs. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying that that's the actual circumstance, but like for example, my daughter has some tendency towards engineering. I'm gonna fight, you know, if she wants to be an engineer to make sure that she has that opportunity. 
Um, and so when you get to an actual human mind in situ in the complex environment, you know, these things are indirect. It doesn't mean you won't find any effects. So, right. you know, for example, on I, I, I usually don't talk about these things in public, but on sex differences, you know, there's actually a pretty strong argument to be made that from parental investment theory, which Trivers and others helped develop, that, that there are going to be some sex differences. And I think, you know, you observe them empirically when you look at something like Kinsey studies or whatever, um, or, you know, the great, a lot of the great studies done by David Buss. Um, but they're always, you know, modest effects. They're not, they're never, you know, black and white effects. There's, a, there's always shades of gray because there are all these things interacting. And so I think you can say parental investment theory probably is correct in its sort of characterization of general tendencies and i think you could also say look there are lots of individuals that that vary right um, that, sure. <clears throat> so well i mean yeah you're you're speaking about of course the interactionist framework which most evolutionists would agree with namely that most of what we are is really an interaction of our genes and our environment which is precisely why i get so angry when people you know levy the accusation well they levy many incorrect accusations at at ep but one of which is that it's you know biological determinism very few things are only i mean yeah sure your height maybe is determined by your genes but for most things we really are a combination even your height isn't right you even your height and you, you lose an inch or two exactly um, that's right i mean a lot of the arguments against evolutionary psychology are arguments against straw man version of evolutionary psychology exactly. that is deterministic and you don't have to believe those things if you're an evolutionary psychologist and if you're someone like my mentor steve pinker you can be very nuanced about the arguments and and really recognize all, all of these complexities um i'm not 100 percent a fan of evolutionary psychology i think that there are weaknesses but I do notice that most of the counterattacks are against exactly that kind of naive, deterministic version. Um, I'm having a fight right now with a guy named uh, Scott Alexander, who you might know, Slate Star Codex. And um, I don't think he's being very fair to me, but in general, something he does that I really like um, <clears throat> is what he calls steel manning rather than straw manning. Right. So instead of attacking the weakest form of some argument, you try to attack the strongest version and you see where that gets you. And I see very few people do that with evolutionary psychology. What is so you at the start of your your last point, you said, you know, you, you there are some issues that you have uh, with EP. Can you give us a summary of what some of these are so that I can uh, assuage those concerns for you? Sure. I mean, there, there are two. Um, one of which I wrote a book about. So the the first other people have written books about, which is the tendency towards just so stories. It's yeah. just too tempting to see the facts as they are, kind of reason backwards, find something that fits and say, well, that's the way it was. And, you know, not every just so story is wrong. Yeah. Um, some just so stories are actually right. And that's a little bit of a problem at a kind of field level because it's the stakes of entry are too low. Anybody can come up with a theory. And there, there is not, I think, enough, um, though this may have changed. I don't follow the field as closely as I used to. But it seemed like there was not enough kind of internal to the field vetting of what's actually a good story here or not. Um, and, and so too many people kind of, you know, it was too easy. But at some point in the, like, I don't know, early 2000s for anybody to go to a party and, like, make up their own dumbass evolutionary psychology theory, which doesn't mean that none of them are good. Like, again, I would say parental investment theory is probably the strongest. Um, and Boss has done great work on that. Whereas Boss's work on homicide, I don't think, is nearly as good as Daly and Wilson's work. Yeah. Um, you know, Daly and Wilson had interesting and subtle arguments and that I just didn't see from, from Boss's account. I don't think you actually have to have an evolved instinct specifically 
for homicide to explain a lot of the facts. I think a lot of the facts can actually be derived from parental investment theory, a general tendency towards doing cost-benefit analysis, and so forth, without saying there's a domain-specific theory. But it, it's a lot of work to sort of weave, weave between these or, or, or to weed stuff out. So that would be my first criticism. So st st stay right there, because so, let me address it. Let me offer you uh, uh, hopefully something that might shift you in the right direction so of all accusations against ep the one that i find most galling is precisely the just story one now you're absolutely right that you know a journalist coming up with you know why women uh buy this you know can come up with a just so story and publish it in the guardian but the epistemology of evolutionary theory in general and evolutionary psychology in particular it is not any more just so storyish than any other field that has some historicity to it, right? So, and let me explain what I mean by yeah. that. So, uh, over the past few years, I've written in several papers and in, in one of my books this idea of nomological networks of cumulative evidence, which is not a meta-analysis, which is not a literature review. Imagine it as a you know you know a triangulation of many, many different lines of distinct evidence, all of which when put together makes a compelling argument for a particular thing that you're trying to explain. So I'll give you a very... That's right. You need converging evidence, to a, put a, that in, in, in a short phrase, for almost anything. And that's true of any science. And it's no different for evolutionary psychology. I think that's exactly right. Thank, I appreciate you saying that. So, but, but I think what makes it unique to evolutionary psychology is that because you're trying to make, let's say, arguments of adaptation or, you know, this phenomenon stems from our evolutionary heritage, I will go and look for cross-cultural data, cross-species data, cross-temporal data, multiple methodologies, multiple dependent measures, so that it becomes almost impossible to reach the evidentiary threshold that is required for me to, you know, convince someone who is otherwise hostile, Right. And I mean, this is why I think the parental investment theory is actually among the best stuff, because it has all of the things that you just talked about. Exactly so, right. um, you know, there's cross species and cross culture and, and you know, there's just a massive, massive amount of uh, <clears throat> evidence. There are many sub hypotheses. Again, Daly and Wilson's some of my favorite work coming up with kind of subtle consequences of the theory around homicide in, in my favorite yeah. book of theirs. Um, and, you know, showing that those turn out to be right, like yeah. about you know, people's economic status and their likelihood of committing homicide and how it relates to all of this and to gender and so forth. So, like, I don't think it's impossible to do well, right? I, my claim is not that there's no good evolutionary psychology out there. Um, it's just that it, it's easy to do poorly. And, of course, that's true of science in general. Anyway, that's one of my... Yeah, give me the second one. The second one is I think there's often, and again, this is not true of everybody in the field, but there is often an assumption <clears throat> that what you want to do is to derive your theory straight from what would have been adaptive for our ancestors. And as Gould pointed out, there is another factor, which I like to call evolutionary inertia. I think I coined that term, um, which is like there's already a set of genes in place at any given point in the evolution of a creature. And that, too, can have a big consequence for the nature of what evolves. So an easy example is the human spine. It's not a particularly good solution for a vertebra, uh, for an upright vertebrate creature, but it's cheap in some sense in evolutionary space because all you have to do is rotate the pelvis rather than like invent some new tripod system that would require 
a whole lot more genes. And what I mean by cheap is really like how many mutations do you need simultaneously? It's not like someone's actually paying the bill. You have to take a you know proper non-theological explanation to really cash it out. But we'll just, we'll just call it cheap. Um, and so I think that some aspects of human psychology are not adaptive, but rather they're the best thing that was available given something else. And in my, this is really what my book Kluge is about. And so an example of this is I think our memory systems suck and it has consequence for our reasoning, um, really rampant uh, consequences for how humans work and get along and more, more often don't get along with each other. So the basic argument, the way I ran it, is if you look at our ancestors, and here I'm running an evolutionary argument, um, <coughs> what you see is Q-dependent memory. And I'm sure as a cognitive psychologist you're familiar with that. Um, we don't have location-addressable memory. So just for your listeners, location-addressable memory is what you have in a computer. This is stored in register 1. This is stored in register 2. There's some master map of it. Um, and what we have is Q-driven memory. So like I might remember something better if when I learned it, I was lying down, and now I try to recall it when I'm lying down. So the lying down is a Q that drives it. And we do this, I think, as a workaround. And we partly do this as a workaround it wasn't part of our evolutionary history to do anything that required location addressable memory. We just needed central tendencies across a lot of stuff. So like there's more food up the mountain or down the mountain, which way should I go? You didn't need to know a lot about individual experiences. So now we are in this world where we actually need a lot of specific information. We don't really have the resources to do it. And so there's some weird consequences like I, or so I argued like confirmation bias. So my theory, and there are other theories about it, uh, about confirmation bias is the reason it exists is because we retrieve things from our memory based on cues. And so you retrieve things that match. We don't really have a not operator the way a computer does to do a search. Um, <clears throat> and so we wind up finding things that confirm our theories. And that has enormous consequence for society. Um, like if you think that vaccines are bad for you, then you remember your buddy who took a vaccine and got a side effect and you don't do a proper integrative statistical search over all of the data that's out there or available or whatever. Serious, serious problem for humanity. Um, and so there, I don't think that our reasoning is optimal, though there are certainly people in literature who argue that, um, but I don't find that plausible. Um, I think it's not optimal, but rather it's sort of the best that evolution could do, given that you had this lousy memory thing in place already and memory is such a... Um, important substrate for all the reasoning that you do. So if I were to summarize your original point in this segment, you're basically saying that evolution is path dependent, right? You're, you're building exactly. on previous, right? So number one, uh, while the second A answer in two words, that was it. There, you like that, you huh? Deep converging evidence and you for path dependent. <laughs> the, the second point that I was going to make, which, I mean, you didn't specifically refer to it, but to the extent that you mentioned Gould, it kind of cued, to use the term cued in my mind, is the difference between an adaptation and an exaptation, right? Exaptation is something that uh, is a byproduct of an evolutionary process. So that also fits within your general story of, you know, the path dependency. Did, did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, I would word it slightly differently, but I think that would be a fair way to start. Um, what I would say is, look, everything is adapted for function, but it is path dependent. And so, I mean, there are things that are just like complete byproducts that make no sense at all. And then there are things where, you know, if my example is correct, and we don't know for sure that it is, would be an example of something where, or the spine would be like this too, where you get something, it's reasonably adapted relative to that path. But you can't read off from what the function is by itself. You have to know that path. And you get, you know, like with the spine. So we have a lousy solution, but 
pregnant women, their spine curves a little to accommodate the baby. So there's further adaptation once you have gone down the path of, of having a single column, you know, uh, support the whole body weight. It, it's not like evolution ceases to try to find the thing in the fitness landscape. It's just that you're in a part of the fitness landscape because of your path. And the naive way to do evolutionary psychology is to look at something and say, the way to solve this would have been such, and therefore I, our ancestors did that. Now, not everybody is that naive, but I think right. it is the default tendency across a wide part of the field. And I see too many people, in my mind, giving answers to like, why do we have this quirk of reasoning in terms of, well, it would have been good for our ancestors to yada, yada, yada. And too often, even considering the alternative, like, Maybe it was actually shitty for our ancestors, but it was the best they could do given the path that they were on. Well, what do you think, since you mentioned reasoning a few times, what do you think about the, the theory by uh, Dan Sperber and uh, Hugo Mercier on uh, the theory of argumentation, that the idea is that you know, we've evolved the capacity to reason, not necessarily because we're trying to get to some you know, ultimate truth with a capital T, but rather to win arguments. I mean, that's kind of in a colloquial way, summarizing it. Are you familiar with that theory? I know about the book. I've intended to read the book, yeah, but I've been spending a lot of my time on AI lately and I haven't read the book. Okay, I think so you should, I, yeah. I, I, I know roughly what the argument is, but I, I don't know their full argument. Um, I, I think that at least related to that are a lot of phenomena. So, you know, there are many things that are really about preserving our ego. I'm not a Freudian, but, you know, sometimes Freud has the right kind of shorthand, even if, you know... He's not a modern psychologist in some right. sense. Um, we do a lot of things or, or to maintain our self-esteem, to use slightly less Freudian technology. And, and so um, there's a kind of fellow traveler with confirmation bias is motivated reasoning. Yeah. And I suppose that that would form the empirical phenomena that, that uh, Mercier and Spurvia are, are, are probably talking about some. We do a lot of stuff to like convince ourselves that we're right. Um, we reconstruct what happened. We, you know, we take credit for suggestions that were other people. All this kind of stuff that makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, I don't know whether this Sperber-Mercier argument is kind of a subset of that, or it's the whole thing, right? So it's not just in reasoning, but also like own work bias and like, you know, you have this clever idea, and then tomorrow I'll say. I have this great idea <laughs> and it'll actually be your retelling of their idea and I'll right. gloss, call it my own. Right. And so that's like, feels good for me. I don't have, I don't have to say I got it from sod and you know, or from a book that I should have read and didn't you know, <laughs> right. my, my great idea. Um, and so, you know, that's not just reasoning that we do a lot of stuff playing fun and games so that we feel good about ourselves. Now it's true that our argumentation, you know, we play fast and loose a little bit, um, there's also a funny aside I'm thinking about right now because I'm writing an article uh, in part about reason from an AI perspective, co-writing it with Doug Bennett of the famous Psych Project, which I can tell you about if you don't know. Um, but anyway, in, in his AI system, which is a very interesting experiment, maybe didn't succeed, but really interesting. It started off by doing deductive reasoning, basically. And <clears throat> over some period of time, it's a long project, um, they moved to a system that's really about argumentation. Um, it's really about finding the best arguments for and against some particular thing rather than trying to find the one truth. We don't do enough of that. Like in politics, we mostly are like, you know, my guy is right. And, you know, here's what's wrong with the other side. We don't do a lot unless maybe we've gone to graduate school. But even then, probably only like when our work hat is on of saying, well, there are actually, you know, multiple arguments here. It could be this. It could be that. You know, a good scientist will even say with evolution, it's not proven. 
you know, here's all the evidence for it, and there's just not a lot on the other side, but I understand, you know, at some level, we're all agnostic about everything if we're good scientists. But you get down to the everyday, and you're, like, fighting with your wife about who did the dishes or whatever, and all that shit goes out the window, and you're just like, I remember, damn it, I did it. (laughs) Right. Uh, The weighing of, of, you know, perspectives doesn't you know survive the, the, the light of conflict typically. I'll just mention two more things two more lines of discussion r- relating to EP and then we'll I'd like to go back to AI and give you some sort of my background in AI which is not nearly this as, as rigorous as yours uh, qu- question one do you think that in cognitive psychology too many cognitive scientists or cognitive psychologists are stuck in proximate world. And again, I know you you probably know these terms, but let me mention it for our for our viewers. Uh, you know, evolutionary theory, the epistemology of evolution argues that there are two levels at which we can explain things. At the proximate level, the how and what of a mechanism, right? And so if you're a memory researcher, you can do, you know, these unbelievably detailed studies about some minutia of the proximate mechanism of how our memory system operates. But then the ultimate explanation is asking the Darwinian why. Why would our emotional system have evolved to be of that form? Why would our the memory system have evolved to be of that form from a Darwinian perspective? Do you feel that, say, comparing to today to when you and I were doctoral students, has there been a greater infusion of ultimate level thinking within cognitive psychology, even if the student in question may not be a hardened evolutionist, do they at least get exposed to the distinction between these two levels of explanations? I think it's still pretty weak in that regard. I, I, I am with you that there is great value in thinking about distal explanations. You know, the, my concerns were like, boiling down to distal explanations are harder than the average person realizes but they were not arguments for not doing it like there's no point here um if you're not looking for the distal explanations i ran an um well so i have this substack now garymarcus.substack.com where i've been writing about ai and it turns out that my most loyal reader is noam chomsky um, is, that, is that true? He, he was one of my first subscribers. He reads every piece except for one about Elon Musk. He's responded to everything I've written. There's like 10 pieces. Um, and almost always what he says is, you know, you're too nice to these neural network people that you're picking on. Um, <laughs> you know, most people think I'm too mean. He, and he, I think, rightly thinks I'm too nice. Um, so anyway, I, this ended up leading to a piece in which he was the star. It was called GPT-3 and Noam Chomsky or something close to that. Um, and the point that I was elaborating there, I put it in my own words, but then with an epilogue written by him. Um, it was a fun piece. Some people were confused who wrote what, but so I wrote the main piece and the epilogue I quoted from him. Um, the point he was making is that even if you got a system like GPT-3 to mimic a human being, it still wouldn't explain why human language is the way that it is. Right? There's no distal explanation coming out of that system. And in fact, if you program in, and I'm maybe crossing his words in mind, but it leads to the same place. Um, if, if you uh, sorry, train <coughs> GPT-3, one of these big, large language models, um, on uh, computer languages, it'll learn that just as easily as natural languages. And I think you actually said you might want to talk about universal grammar. Ch- Chomsky's whole point is that Human languages are just some small subset of all the world's languages you could possibly imagine. And what you want to know as a scientist is why do we speak those and not, for example, computer languages? So, for example, computer languages are perfectly recursive. This wouldn't be Chomsky's example, but mine. Whereas human languages have some embedding, but they have limits on that embedding. Um, Computer languages are completely unambiguous, and at least properly designed ones are. 
Um, and human languages are filled with ambiguity, which, you know, poets use the good use. If you want to be an evolutionary psychologist, you can, you know, talk about that. But, you know, also causes lots of problems, etc. Um, but in any case, we have the languages that we do, and they could have been different. Now, if you are a biologist, let's say looking at plants, and I borrow this example from Chomsky from when I was a grad student. Um, if you're looking at plants, one thing to do would be just list all the plants. But it would be much more satisfying to find out, like, why do we have the plants that we do on this planet? There are other planets you can imagine, but the ones we have all have, you know, relatively common structures. And that's interesting. And for a linguist, that's what you want to understand is why do we have the languages that we do? And all this AI work, even when it works at its best, is telling us nothing about why human languages are the way they are. They'll just mimic whatever data they leverage from massive databases that humans do. They're, they're sort of parasitic and they're not explanatory. And so they're deeply unsatisfying exactly on the axis that you just asked about, which is proximal and distal. I don't think that GPT-3 is the right proximal mechanism for language. We could talk about why, but even if it were, it gives you no insight to the distal thing of why language has been shaped the way that it has. And that's disappointing if you're a scientist and you know you want to understand we have this very bizarre creature with no obvious analog, namely the human being that transmits all this stuff through culture, most of it verbally. And like, how does that happen? I, I want my science to tell me that. And so what percentage of linguists would be at all steeped within some sort of evolutionary framework. I'm, I'm obviously not holding you down to the two de digital, digit decimal of... Well, it's less than 1% and we can worry about the fraction. Is that um, is that literally true? So not, you know, the great majority of linguists will merely go on about their careers fully decoupled from any ultimate explanations of their work. Of evolution? Yeah, that's partly Chomsky's fault. I, I love Chomsky's yearly, but I, I think that he's made some mistakes along the way. And... Um, there's a whole side thing, which is like, if you're in a position of influence, then your bad ideas influence as much as your good ideas. And Chomsky for a while, almost like forbade the discussion of evolution. Now he talks about it some, he's got his own theories, which I don't particularly agree with. Um, but I think he kind of put it off the table for, you know, I don't, I won't try to analyze exactly what the reasons were. Um, and so most linguists kind of grew up thinking, well, if Chomsky thinks it's a waste of time to talk about evolution, I'm not going to talk about evolution. Now, I think there's a subtler argument to make, which is we know so little about the evolution of language that it's hard to make arguments with force. And, you know, I, I could respect that. Um, language is particularly hard to study because the closest thing that might look like a counterpart in any animal species is probably animal calls, and they just don't work the same way as, as natural language. So, you know, when a vervet monkey shouts that there's an eagle above it's just not the same system as human language and that means that you can't do things like use animal models the way you can in vision so if you want to study mm -hmm. vision if you're comfortable with the ethics of it you can do all kinds of experiments on monkeys turns out that monkey vision is organized in many ways not all but in many ways similar to humans and we have good reason to to believe that from the genetics and from experiments when people's brains are cut open for epilepsy you can do some comparisons and blah 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 blah, blah. so there's lots of animal model stuff you can do there's lots of um uh intervention studies you can do with animals where they might make some people queasy but people have done them so like what happens if you raise a cat in an environment where there's all stripes we don't have anything i mean maybe people would think that's unethical now but the experiments were done in the 60s and we we can look at them and, and you know have all kinds of information we don't have any of that for language so it's really really hard to 
kind of fill in the evolutionary record around language. So there's a respectable argument which would say it's just really hard and maybe we should work on other things that are more accessible. But I don't think there's a respectable argument to say it's impossible or irrelevant. And there, there is a set of people that Chomsky is somewhat allied with um, who call themselves biolinguists who do care about these considerations. I, I think it's just hard to do the work in a persuasive way. So that, that, that's an interesting segue to one of the questions that I was going to pose uh, later in our chat where you know, you've done some work on songbirds. So that, does the fact that you know, it's difficult to, uh, you know, link human language to some of the other vocalizations and other species. Does that mean that when we're looking at the distinction between a homology and an analogy, and again, I know you know this, but let me mention this for our uh, listeners and our viewers, a, a homologous trait would be a trait across two species that uh, uh, signals that they have you know, common ancestor, whereas an analogous trait would be where a particular morphological feature or a behavioral pattern has independently evolved for the two species in question. So then if I heard you correctly, then when you are doing comparisons between, say, bird vocalization or song learning and so on, and human utterances, those would be analogous well, I think at least the animal cries and human language are probably analogous in that sense and not homologies. There, there's interesting work. I think Eric Jarvis has probably done the best work on the neuroscience of the circuitry of the avian vocalization system and how that relates to the human language system. And I haven't followed that as closely as I used to. Like, if I wanted to update, I would go to Eric Jarvis's website. I can't remember where he is these days. He might be at Duke. He might have moved. Um, you know, he, he's done the best work looking at the kind of neural substrate saying, can we map this structure onto that structure? But if, if you look at the psychological stuff, there are always arguments back and forth. There are some things that might be shared, like the mere ability to concatenate bits of something together. So, you know, many songbird songs are made up of smaller parts that get put together. That's at least reminiscent of syntax. And you can at least ask without certainty like, if they did it in one way, does that give us any clues as to how we might do it? it you know, there's useful science to be done there, but it's it's difficult going. And I think that, in general, there's really something unique in the present animal world about the way in which we relate the semantics of what we're talking about to the syntax of it. Um, and the way that we can talk about things, not just the here and now, like there's an eagle overhead at this moment, but hypotheticals, like... If I saw an eagle in the middle of this podcast come into my room, let's say I'd left the window open, what would I do about it? Like, we can talk about that. And I could be like, I would run or I would say, hey, can we pause and let me take a picture? Like, we can have this whole interesting conversation around it. And I don't see any anything like that using the word analogous in its original sense. Um, anything analogous to that in the animal world. There's, they just don't do that. Um, and the way in which we can do this kind of compositional thing of structuring complicated stuff. So I can say, this is the iPhone that is in my hand, in, in this room, in my apartment. You know, kind of string together this complex bit of structuring. You know exactly what I mean by that. There's no animal that can do that. Like, Yeah, no, got you. Uh, is, is there, so sticking with the birds versus humans, uh, there are some birds, of course, that have this uncanny ability to mimic human, you know, vocalizations, right? Like Where they, parrots. Like parrots, exactly. And hence to parrot someone, right? Okay. That links to another question I had on my list, which is, and, and, and I was, actually, that's probably one of the questions that I was most excited to ask you because I've never known what the answer is. 
but then again, I didn't search for it very, very hard. Why is it that there comes an age at which second language acquisition, if learned after that age, magically I could never enunciate in the way that I should if I were a native speaker of that tongue. And my thinking is something happens hormonally that shuts off the mimicry module in my brain. I mean, does that seem to make sense or am I completely off base? I'm I'm scowling because I wish I had a better answer. I will caveat that like for the last you know, six years, I've mostly read AI. And so there could be some study I don't know. So, um, but what I have found is a lack of clarity on answering your question. So it's not that you haven't looked up the answer that is known, but that it is not really known. So there's a a bunch of things that go into it. Um, First thing to say is it's not quite as sharp as you believe. There are some adults that actually can do native well, though it is very rare. Um, It is more true for phonology the pronouncing words than it is for the syntax of how a sentence gets put together there's careful work that shows that meaning phonology cannot be mimicked as well as the the other uh as well as syntax yeah okay um some of it may be motivational if you're four years old you have nothing better to do than to kind of copy the sounds around you and if you're 24 years old you know, you're trying to get a job, you're trying to pay the rent, meet a partner, take care of your kids or whatever. Um, and you just don't have the free time to do it. So there may be some, you know, stuff around motivation and time management that contributes to it. Um, there may be <coughs> some contributions of habit. So if you have a habit of doing, you know, this particular syllable in this way, or ph- phoneme in this way, it's hard to get you to do it in a different way, because you've so invested in the other so there are all these theories floating around and they probably all account for some of the variants it's not as clear all the things i said are clear but there's no like one smoking overarching framework right Uh, i mean the reason i mean one of the reasons i'm asking is it from a personal perspective is that i too have two children uh my wife and i speak uh five languages combined i speak four she speaks three we don't share two of the languages I speak. She doesn't speak them. One of the languages she speaks, I don't speak them. So I, I speak, my mother tongue is Arabic. We're, we're Lebanese Jews. And so I speak Arabic, also speak Hebrew, French, and English. My wife speaks uh, French and English and Armenian. She's Lebanese Armenian. We ended up not speaking to our children either in Arabic, Hebrew, or Armenian because if I speak in those two languages, she doesn't understand. If she speaks in Armenian, I don't understand. And so our kids have grown up only speaking French and English, which really upsets me. That's probably my greatest parental regret so far. May it be the only one that I ever experienced because I think that we're, we've uh, destroyed their potential to have this incredible linguistic heritage, right? When I walk into, you know, when I, when I hold a, a, a very serious chat on some show in Arabic, suddenly people are, comp- it's, it's as if I'm an alien, right? I mean, they, they can't imagine that I could be holding a chat in Arabic. It's really quite, it's quite, intoxicating in a sense it's quite powerful right and yet they've lost this ability and the reason why i asked you about how old are they well exactly that's the point because i'm now seeing that window closing very quickly so my son is 10 my our daughter is 13 so are we are we have we missed the boat uh, dr marcus or do we have hope yet well if, if you move to an arabic speaking country and gave them no choice they'd probably catch up the 10 yeah. year old definitely would the 13 year old might yeah um, exactly 13 is is on the edge where they might get it they might not and 
um, you know, the 13 year old's got some hormones going probably and probably has other interests. You know, might, <laughs> Not boys, though. Don't say boys. Might be more incentive, might be less incentive. You know, like the empirical de- detail are not black and white, like I'm saying, um, but they're they're strong. Got you. Okay, let's let's now delve into I, I guess what seems to be your sort of biggest passion these days, uh, you know, within the intellectual landscape, which is AI. Before we delve into AI, uh, let me give you my background in AI, which is quite limited formally. Uh, in 1985 or 86, so I did an undergrad in mathematics and computer science, and my AI professor in an AI course was a gentleman by the name of Monty Newborn. So first question is, have you heard of him? Do you know who that is? Monty Newborn, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you should have or shouldn't have heard of him. He was part of the original, I guess, team or gang that worked on, uh, is it Big Blue or Deep Blue? You know, the chess, the chess mm-hmm. uh, playing games. Uh, I think it was through uh, uh, IBM. And uh, one of the assignments that we had, one of the big assignments we had to do in the course was to use alpha beta uh, pruning, you know, search algorithm to kind of cut down a tree for a game that we chose. I I can't believe I still remember all these details. and so at the time, I was very excited as a kind of a computer science guy. I was very ins- excited by the promise of AI. But I, I always thought, as just an undergraduate student at the time, that maybe we were overselling the promise of AI. So now fast forward 35 plus years later, and then looking at your latest book, it, it seems as though my intuition from 35 years ago is materializing in in your positions. Is that did I summarize that correctly, or am I totally off base? Yeah, I mean th- these positions are older than you or I. <laughs> right. But but um, I, I think that the overselling of AI has become big industry right now. I think there's been real progress in some respects. Maybe the most impressive stuff are these art generating programs like Dali two and um, Imogen and and. Stuff. What do they do? Can you can you just explain to our viewers what these these uh, systems do? <laughs> What are the things that they solve? What they do is they draw a picture given text. They don't work perfectly, and sometimes the hype hides that fact. But you know, in in a a best case scenario, you'd say like, I want a picture of a guy with a microphone in front of him in the style of Van Gogh, and it might very well give you that. And it's an exhilarating feeling when you get that. You, you have a feeling of power. Um, it might be really fussy if you said. I want a picture of a guy in front of a microphone with a book of, um, on evolutionary psychology in the business sciences in the background. And, you know, for you, the title might be important and it might come back as either the Jewish and, you know, like just completely garbling the words. That's one of the things these systems actually do is they have a tendency to garble words. Um, and so, like, if you wanted a rough sketch and then you had a real artist finalize it, it'd be brilliant. Like you could do in, in an hour, you get 20 ideas. Um, if you wanted an exact final thing that you would want from a commercial artist, you'd be disappointed. You'd be like, no, no, could you move this to the left? And it doesn't understand what move this to the left means. Um, so, you know, how much commercial impact it's going to have, I don't know, but I suspect it'll be considerable. Um, it's certainly going to be useful for people let's say, in a filmmaking industry where they want to show concept art to help people get a general sense and they have a whole stable of artists that can then fill it in. Um, and it'll be useful if you want something for your PowerPoint slides and you don't care too much about the detail. Um, so it's going to have its uses. 
may also have its frustration. But in any case, it's cool, but some people think it's even cooler than it actually is. So when it came out, the first of these systems came out, the CEO of OpenAI said 45 minutes after releasing it, AGI is going to be wild. And let me unpack what he meant by that. So first of all, AGI is artificial general intelligence. Um, suddenly have some background noise. Um, so so um, he was saying that artificial general intelligence, machines that can understand anything, are going to be kind of amazing because look at this cool thing that we come up. And the reality is that this tool, though it's really interesting, I think has nothing to do with artificial general intelligence. And in fact, we have not made much progress in artificial general intelligence. We've been working on it uh, collectively as a field for over 65 years. And some of the most basic things remain unsolved. And you can even see that if you look carefully at Dali. So, for example, it doesn't understand the difference between I want a red cube on top of a blue cube and I want a blue cube on top of a red cube. It doesn't understand what the philosopher of language, Frege, um, or I'll say this point. Frege is known for this idea of compositionality. Um, and this system doesn't have it. Compositionality is like understanding a whole in terms of its parts. And... It just doesn't really do that. Um, and it's hard if you're not an expert in AI to understand even how it's doing what it's doing. But the reality is it doesn't really understand what it's talking about. Another instance is if you say I want a cup of coffee with holes in it, it doesn't know that the coffee would spill out of the holes. So you'll see the blob of coffee in the um, holes behind it. And the defenders of the faith will be like, well, it's just trying to be surrealist or whatever. But they wouldn't wind up... If really weird land of unfalsifiability that would nauseate Karl Popper. Um, so like, any, you know, you make a story this is another version of Dussoism um, for anything. But the reality is the systems don't understand the physical world or the psychological world. They have a big library of pictures that they're interpolating between. And we don't have any intuitions about what that means at a scale where there's a billion pictures in the input. It turns out you can do really fabulous things, but that you're not actually that smart. So it's kind of like a magic trick, like, when somebody looks like they're cutting the lady in half with the saw, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, two steps away from a technology in which we can cut people in half. We're, we're nowhere near such a technology. Um, so, so what? Forgive if if the way I'm phrasing this is rudimentary. I I obviously haven't kept up with the AI literature the way that you would have. But you know, I remember when when I first was exposed to AI. So the the sort of the the, the big application area that I can sort of remember. I think it was maybe at Stanford where they were using AI for medical diagnostics, right? So these would be called, I suppose, you know, structured problems where we we have a clear sense of how to model the landscape of knowledge so that using some kind of computational power allows me to navigate through this a search space you know better than you and I might the same way that I might do the same thing for a chess game is that where we're still at where we can we can do all these computational things very well but some of those je ne sais quoi that is part of human cognition are still not being able to be modeled by these ai systems is that roughly where we're still at yeah i think that's that's right um I sometimes talk about closed problems versus open-ended okay. problems. And the more <laughs> open-ended it is, the more our current AI is see. You know, maybe the most impressive system is Gato that can do like, I forget if it is, 350 different tasks. But if you give it to the 351st task that isn't in its training set, it's probably going to screw up. Right. Whereas if I tell you, okay, I want you to play a new game you've never played before. I see you have a bunch of books in the background. I want you to put them on the table in a pile alternating so one... Um, the first book faces to the left, the second book to the right, and so forth. 
boom, you can go do it. Like with that brief description, you could do it with a hundred books. You could make, you know, big stacks and, and, and no problem. And the AI systems would have no idea um, how to do that. They, they don't have this human ability. You said, Jenny, like, well, <clears throat> to hear a new task and go and do it or take a small amount of instruction and, and deal with it. What they do right now is a kind of brute force. It's not the yeah. same as the chess computer that you knew once upon a time. And technically, it might not count as brute force as it was once defined. But ultimately, that's really what it is. The brute force here is a lot of data, a lot of compute, and something like a lookup table or computer scientists might know the term a hash table. Exactly. Um, and, and that's most of what current AI is doing. And the problem is it mostly works most of the time and rarely works all of the time. And so you get into <coughs> domains where that's fine and domains where it's not. So in advertising recommendation, if I say you like, you know, the consuming instinct and I say, well, maybe you'll like evolutionary psychology and the business sciences. And it turns out you don't because it's a more technical version. I'm guessing just looking yeah, at the yeah, cover, yeah. you know, too bad. Nobody dies. You know, some money was wasted on a book. It's fine. Give it to a friend. But if I have a driverless car that works most of the time and now runs into a tractor trailer that was parked and kills you, that's a very serious error. And it has happened. Um, and so these systems are not very reliable because they're basically working on lookup look up tables. They can't really reason about what it is that they're seeing. So most of the time you drive by reflex, but sometimes you see something weird, like some dude is carrying a stop sign. Maybe you never saw it before, but you can be like, I guess that dude wants me to stop. Right. <laughs> and right. you know, Tesla can't reason in that way. And, and so, you know, there are domains where this is really quite dangerous. So I was going to, uh, one of the questions that I was going to ask that speaks to the inability of AI systems to model, you know, all of the capabilities that humans can can, can achieve is sarcasm. Now, it, it has a personal um, connotation for me because I don't, I'm not sure how closely you follow my social engagement, but I, I tend to be quite a assiduous satirist and, and I tend to be quite sarcastic. Now, many people understand that, but then there's a whole slew of people who will get incredibly angry at me and start sending me hate mail because they actually didn't realize that I was being sarcastic. I've even fooled a lot of media where they will run with an article thinking, oh, look at this moron professor spreading this stupidity. I was being sarcastic. Now, I'm going to assume that probably one of the most difficult things to get AI systems to do well is to understand sarcasm. Is, is that correct? And if so, why? I, I would assume it's very difficult. Um, first, I will preface that by saying there is a system called, is it Palm? I believe it's Palm. One, one of the recent Google systems, there have been several, um, is alleged to understand jokes. But the form of the evidence is they show you five jokes and it gives you five explanations for those jokes. But you as a scientist will recognize that a numerator without a denominator is worthless. <laughs> So we don't know how many times they tried in order to get those five right. successful things. We don't know what the database is that went in. We don't know how close those five are to other things in the database. And they haven't published more details. And I've scolded them for it. And they haven't come back with an answer. So I assume that it's not very strong at, at what it does. It might work some of the time. It's not going to get all of the collected wit and wisdom of God's sod. Like, you're going to be outside of the training <laughs> set. It's going to fail. Um, of course, some humans may fail, too. Um, Ultimately, to get sarcasm, <clears throat> what you really need to do is to have a model of the world, a model of the listener, and a model of the speaker. Right. And, you know, for sarcasm to work, the person has to have some basis in which to understand you're kidding. Now, sarcasm is 
in that sense, audience specific. Right. So, you know, I could say, so my point is the earth is flat. And if you don't have enough context to realize that I'm a scientist and that, you know, I couldn't possibly mean that the earth is flat, then you might think that it's a literal utterance. So you have to have a, a model right. of me and where I'm coming from to deduce that I probably didn't really mean it and that I'm being sarcastic. And there is no current system that has a rich enough model of a human being, their intentions and how they use language to be able to do this systematically. And I don't think we're even close to that. I do think, you know, next week someone can train up a model on some labeled examples of sarcasm and it'll get some of them, but it's not going to do it generally. It's going to be like with the driverless cars. You know, there have been demos for 50 years. You can get a or 40 years or whatever it is to get a, a car to stick to its lane. And some people will say, look, we're, you know, we're on the road to dr driverless cars. But there's an old saying, which I've, I've kind of borrowed, which is um, a, a ladder to the moon is not going to get you to the moon. So you, you can build a little ladder. It's a little bit better than last week at sarcasm. And, you know, you get a little bit better data set. It picks out a couple more, but you're not going to get a systematic solution short of having models of human beings and what they're saying and we don't know how to do that yet. so then what so to link it to your latest book from in your from your perspective from your view what does it mean to reboot ai you know, give us kind of the synopsis of what has been done in ai that's wrong and how we can sort of press the reset button and, and do better moving forward so right now i i like to use the metaphor of of the himalayas you could climb a tall mountain, let's say K2, be all the way up there, but you really want to get to Everest. And you could kid yourself, each step you take going up K2, thinking you're getting closer to the peak of Everest, and you'd be wrong. The only way to get to Everest is you're going to have to go back down. You know, It's going to suck, but you're going to have to do that. And that's where we are with AI. So we've gotten really high on this peak of, what if I had massive, massive amounts of data and insane amounts of compute that like the the... Uh, founders of AI had no conception was even possible, you know, except in theoretical abstract. Um, and we've gotten really far up that mountain. That allows us to do speech recognition that mostly works in driving that works a good percentage of the time and so forth. But I don't think anything that we're doing there is really all that helpful to what we need to do. So for sarcasm and really for language comprehension more generally, we need to build models of the world and of the mind. And that's just a different pursuit than statistically basically building autocomplete systems. So, yeah. you know, what large language models are, are they autocomplete on steroids? Um, as I put it in a recent essay called Nonsense on Stilts. Um, they, they're basically just predicting next words and sentences. And it's astonishing what you can do with that, but it's just not the right solution. So if Lambda, this model that was allegedly sentient, says in response to what do you like to do with your free time? It says, I like to play with my friends and family. Well, it's just found that in a database. Maybe it's put in some synonyms. You know, you said, I like to play with my buddies and, and my relatives. And it maybe it cha changes a couple of words like a good high school plagiarist might do. But it, it doesn't have friends or family that it's referring to. And if you said which friends and which family, you'd have to just fabricate that online it's not referring to a mental representation of particular entities a good ai is going to need to do that or good isn't the right word a robust ai is going to need to have those representations of what it means by friends and family and we're just nowhere towards doing that we're spending all our time climbing the wrong mountains so rebooting is first of all a, a almost emotional thing of saying god it's nice up here in k2 and the views are fantastic and i'm really proud of myself but I'm going to have to get off this fucking mountain and go down. And that is so scary. Nobody wants to do it. I wonder if I can analogize 
all that you just said with the following example from pure mathematics. So if, if you look at uh, the distribution of prime numbers, we don't know, you know, we, we can't analytically know what the next prime number is, you know, going into infinity, but we can use 73,000 in parallel computers to come up with the next prime number that is, you know, 6 million digits long. I didn't generate that one by understanding the, the analytics of the distribution of prime numbers. It was by brute force. So would it be, is that a fair analogy to an AI whereby we're still stuck in brute force world and still not understanding the analytics of the human architecture uh, of the yeah, mind. Yeah, and I'll give you another analogy from philosophy or philosophy of language. It's about intention and extension. And you might know the terms, maybe your, your audience doesn't, but um, like, let's say I, I talk about odd numbers, right? The intention is basically all the numbers that are divisible by two with a remainder of one. The extension is a big list of them. One, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, and so forth. It is possible for a system to have a big list but not really understand what the intention of an odd number mm -hmm. is. And neural networks, which are the popular technology now, basically focus on the extension and never really get the intention, which is why they always break. Like you teach them math and they get two-digit multiplication problems pretty well when you give them a bunch of examples. Now they multiply four digits by four digits and they're just a chance. They just don't really understand multiplication even after a vast amount of data. And so you can fool yourself if you look at the extension and limit yourself to the small numbers into thinking, ah, it's learned it. I like Actually, that. What it's done is memorization, yeah. a little tiny bit of generalization, but it hasn't got the deep generalization that, that is there for the taking. Beautiful. Two last questions, and then you, you've been very kind and generous with your time. Uh, question one. Uh, so, you know, for, many years ago, there were, you know, a grouping of mathematicians that got together. I can't remember if it was, was it Hilbert? I can't, I can't remember who it was, where they came up, you know, here are the 10 math problems that we have to solve. And I think notably on that was Fermat's last theorem, which was solved, of course, by Sir Andrew Wiles. What is the holy grail in cognitive science? Is it the modeling of human uh, consciousness? Is, is that it? Is that is that the one that gets you the Nobel Prize? Uh, in cognitive what? science? Yeah, let's suppose there is there is a there is a Nobel Prize in cognitive science. There is the holy grail of cognitive science. Is is consciousness the end goal, or understanding it? I mean, I think we have a lot of problems to solve before we get there. Um, when I think about consciousness, I always think of the last excuse me, the last line of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, which is, where we cannot speak, we must remain silent. I think there's a lot of talk about consciousness, but we don't really know what the problem is. Um, you know, David Chalmers is right that there's a hard problem and an easy problem, but the hard problem we still haven't formulated well. Um, I think that there's much more basic things to be solved in cognitive science first that are themselves hard, but not as hard. Um, in terms of like, what is the way in which we represent knowledge? How do we understand a sentence? There are many sub problems that are just really, really hard. How does a child, you know, the one that I wish I could answer, how does a child come into this world with whatever innate stuff is there, which innate stuff is it, and pick up a language, a first language? It's one thing to pick up a second language where you already have a conceptual thing to map it onto, but a first language, like, how do you even figure out what are the nouns and verbs and that there are nouns and verbs and how do you relate, you know, some of these to objects and some to events and, you know, the data are so messy and complicated. How do you manage to do that? Like understanding how a child learns a language, that's certainly Nobel worthy. It, it's not flashy in the same way as some things, but that is an amazing problem. I spent, you know, my graduate career thinking about it still <coughs> don't really feel like I'm even close to an answer on that's that. That's your work where, uh, you know, the the child uses the wrong tense for a verb. That That's that's that 
Well, that was my particular take on it. I mean, it's the yeah. pimple on the you know giant mountain, yeah, right. it, it, or, or alternatively, more charitably, it, as Pinker would say, it was it was the kind of fruit fly of language. Right. Like, here's this very seemingly trivial system. You have irregular verbs like go turns to went in the past tense, or sing turns to sang, and then you have these regular verbs like right. walk goes to walk. How does a kid even figure that out? And I mean, it's a nice case of this, right? Like, how does a child even understand? That when I say go and I say went, that I'm talking about two different things at two different times. Yeah. That is an amazing intellectual feat that is still unexplained. People have been thinking about those specific errors since, I guess, the 1960s. Like amazing. my whole life, people have been thinking about that. And the only solutions we have, and you know, mine included, and I've spent my thesis working on, are hand waving. We don't really have an answer to that. And like a lot of people have focused on. The simple part of the problem, which is if you have that list of irregular verbs that you could get in a second language guide to English, how do you figure that part out and figure out, you know, that ring goes to rang? Maybe you haven't heard it before. You heard something, but completely ignoring the hard part of understanding what time is and why tense is represented in a language. Nobody has solved that. So, that, like, I would give a Nobel to, you know, a, a satisfactory answer to that it's such a deep question about. Um, what makes humans human and then the corresponding question for AI is how do you get an AI system to do that? Nobody has that, you know, you can get fooled by these systems like GPT because they can talk about a lot But they don't really know what the fuck they're talking about um, Whereas, you know, by the time my kids were three or four years old when they talked, they knew what they were talking about and They didn't know every single vocabulary item in English But if I said can you walk on the edge of that chair without falling off? They would go walk on the chair without falling off. Like they, they could immediately turn that into a, a motor and cognitive challenge instantaneously because they could relate the words to the stuff in the world. I think what, yeah. So before, before I get to the last question, which I'll leave you off with, uh, what, as you were saying all these different things, it, it reminded me at how, why I became so excited by the field of cognitive studies because it is so interdisciplinary, right? So you're talking about linguistics, you're talking about AI, computer science, modeling, psychology, and it's because each of those disciplines has something, or philosophy has something unique to say about the human mind. So for you aspiring students who would love to study the human mind and do so from an interdisciplinary perspective, cognitive studies is the way to go. Last question on a personal level, is there anything that you would like to plug in terms of a future set of projects that you're working on? This is your opportunity to use this platform to do so. Take it away, Gary. It's funny doing podcasts when you're not plugging something. For right now, people can read my Substack, GaryMarcus.substack.com. Um, there will be a podcast of my own in the spring, which should be pretty interesting. And I presume that I'll be the first luminary guest on that show? Uh, well, the first episode is already underway and you won't fit in, but maybe you will come in later. <laughs> well, I look forward to hopefully an invitation coming. Hey, Gary, so stay, stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. It was such a pleasure and honor to meet you. Keep doing those great things that you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, this was a fabulous, wide-ranging, interdisciplinary conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Gary. Cheers.